You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. For more information about this podcast, please check out nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. For episode 32, I will be talking to Bradley Scott, the leader of the Bay Area band at the Bye Bye Blackbirds, who have been putting out albums of power pop, sometimes country-inflected rock and roll, since around 2006. We are right now listening to their first big song, The Ghosts Are Alright, from their 2008 Houses and Homes album. We will be talking about the new single, Let Your Hair Fall Down, and to a slower track, Hats, from the 2011 album Fixed Hearts, and another song from that same album, though composed earlier, Elizabeth Park, concluding by listening to All in Light from the 2013 album We Need the Rain. We're here, this is another phone interview, so not the sound quality that I'd like, but the discussion more than makes up for it. I hope you enjoy it. For more information about Bradley and the band, check out ByeByeBlackbirds.com. Hey, Bradley. I will have played a little bit of The Ghosts Are All Right from Houses and Homes, which oh, was okay. one I found particularly catchy. I found myself spinning that one endlessly. Yeah, that's great. That's one I'm definitely very proud of. And it was sort of a, one of the first songs that people grabbed onto from us. Now, I know from looking at Wikipedia that you're approaching 40 right now or, or have hit it. I have arrived. I have achieved 40. And this band came together in 2005. So I saw that Bell da Gama is an earlier band that you've got a 2001 album that I did not hear of. Tell a little about your history, how you got to the point of this band and where you currently are to get us fairly rapidly toward the most current single, Let Your Hair Fall Down, that we'll hear in a few minutes. Yeah, Bell da Gama was a band that had been around for four or five years or so. And like you said, there's a, a record that came out in 2001. And it, it wasn't really a band at that point. We really started putting the live thing together after that and started working on a, a second record. And that record was begun, but it was never finished. And after the breakup of that band, the guitarist and Bell da Gama and I sat down and said, okay, that didn't really work out. What do we want to accomplish musically? Like, what are our sort of prime goals? What are things we want to focus on? What are things we did well? In this very sort of deliberate, systematic way, came up with this blueprint for what we wanted, what became the Bye Bye Blackbirds to be. And it was really a songwriting focus more than anything. It was about focusing on melody and lyrics and things that may sound really basic, but things that were just sort of a little more the core of what we thought we were good at, harmonies, things like that. And so that's kind of how we started that. We went out and we found, we actually, in the old sort of Craigslist days when you could find great musicians on Craigslist, we found a bass player who was also a really good singer and songwriter, William Duke, and he joined. And so that was the beginning of the Blackbirds. And over time, that lineup has changed a bit. And neither Ian nor William are in the band anymore. But Lenny, the original drummer, is still in the band, although he's now a guitar player. He was a typical sort of uh, revolving door sort of thing. But yeah, so that was just the beginning of it. It was this blueprint of how we wanted things to work, sort of in reaction to things that were, you know, and Delta Gamma was a fine band. It had some good moments, but we just sort of felt like we weren't really playing to our strengths all the time, and we were going uphill all the time. So not that the Blackbirds has been the smoothest ride in all ways, but it's been sort of more musically focused and more musically rewarding. And even with the lineup changes, I think, has been had consistently strong. So you decided to do this project that would be stylistically consistent that was within this what power pop country generally descended from the birds sort of tradition, big star. That's certainly the sound of the band. If you want to figure out if somebody in advance is going to like your band, those are the sort of names I would throw out. How do you see, just because I've read some press of yours, 
classifying you as a genre band, which for me is always strange because rock being the thing that I grew up on is almost not a genre. It's sort of the default way that one expresses oneself, but there's much more focus within rock and roll. What you're doing here has some elements of bad fingers and other band like that. I mean, was that a conscious effort that we're going to slim down and focus on this one proven style that you like? No, no, not at all. I, I, in fact, I think I'm much more in your line of thinking. So I just think of us as a rock band that has some country and mm-hmm. other influences and things in it. But power pop for me is not, I mean, I, there are power pop bands that I love. And I would definitely say that Big Star is, has been a prime influence and inspiration to me since I was you know, a teenager. But I never thought of them as a power pop band in terms of a genre. You know? And in fact, there's a lot of things about them that are very different than a lot of what we think of as genre power pop bands. It really, when we were focusing on sort of narrowing down what we wanted to focus on, it was really musical elements, like you know, what really worked for us you know, in our previous projects. And it was it was melody, it was harmonies and lyrics, and things that we associate, perhaps, with the power pop genre. But it wasn't like, hey, let's be a power pop band. And I very rarely sort of think of us as a power pop band. I think there's a lot of other things going on. And I think stuff that I sort of bring to the table as a songwriter, most of my influences and things that I've drawn on are not power pop songwriters and i just generally think of them as rock and roll songwriters or rock and roll bands so yeah it wasn't so much a genre thing and in fact the genre thing it's a blessing and a curse you know in some ways there is a community of people who will pay attention to us and buy our stuff because there's a power pop connotation and they like that kind of thing and we can push those buttons not in a manipulative way but you know there's aspects to our music that work for them but at the same time it's a very small community it's a very limited community and there are people who are dismissive you know they're like oh great another power pop band you know guys in striped shirts you know singing songs about girls or something and so i I have sort of a love-hate with it and i don't relate to a lot of power pop stuff on that level i just there are wonderful artists and bands that are in power pop sphere that i love and and feel a connection to but as a genre it wasn't really something that i was looking for reaching out for well let's get a full song example here out so we can try to get it kind of why are you making exactly this kind of music at this time and let's look at let your hair fall down so this is the new single which I guess even just the choice to release it as a single without an album, where did that come from? This was an awesome enough song. You didn't want to wait for another 10 or 12 songs to be done. Let's just get this out there to show where the band is at now. What Say something about this song. Yeah, and Patience was definitely part of it. You know, we've been through a lot of lineup changes and a lot of sort of life changes in the past few years that have put off getting the next record out. And Let Your Hair Fall Down will be on the next record, but I knew that we were sort of a long ways from getting to that point. And so I just had this determined to get something out. And doing it as sort of a digital single is, is sort of a half-assed way to do it. It's mostly just saying, hey, yeah, we're here. You know, we're live. This is great. You're going to love this. Hold on, kind of thing. And maybe in some ways it was more just to make us feel better. But we just had these tracks sitting there and they were ready to be finished, but we hadn't started really on the rest of the new record. It was just sort of this in-between time. And I just felt strongly that it was a great single and it just felt really good. And and I was excited for people to hear it. So and for me, at least, it's worked in that way. It's sort of like created enough energy that we could then move on and focus on the record and get going on that and not feel like this vast desert of time was accumulating behind us. And, oh, no one's going to know who we are by the time the new record comes out or something. So that was, impatience was part of it and just sort of a sense of like giving people a little taste of some of the things we were up to.
So talk about the power in power pop. I know this is a, sort of an obsession of mine, just that there's sort of more Baroque kinds. There's like the birds where the energy doesn't go over the top. And then there's the who, which sort of sacrifices precision for energy. Overall, listening to your records, maybe it's just because they're well-produced. They seem to fall more in the Baroque category here for me that, yes, the drums are loud. You're standing in front of them. Yes, this is rock and roll. And there's some places like right at the end where you've got these big Pete Townsend sort of hit the power chord three times as we're spinning right toward the end. But for the most part, it's kind of just we're in a groove here 
And then the way that the horns sit on top of that sort of adds to the largeness of the thing. Can you say a little about what is the mood here? What are you trying to do musically here? I think because there's a lot of detail in the songwriting, it doesn't really lend itself to sort of that big sort of bashing swinging kind of thing. But I love that too. So in a way, it's sort of a marriage of those two things or my attempt to marry those two things because I really love the rock end of things. You know, mentioning Big Star earlier, one of the things I love about them is not just that they have this Baroque birdsy thing that you're talking about, but they also have this boogie rock thing. You know, there's T-Rex in there, there's status quo. There's all this other kind of bluesy English kind of boogie rock elements to Big Star that I love as much as the you know, Baroque side. And so I think I'm drawn, you know, to those two things, you know, and Let Your Hair Fall Down has the main riff on that. There's almost like a T-Rexy sort of thing going on and the horns are kind of stonesy and but at the same time I think you've also focused on the fact that there's this sort of song writery detail to it. It's a song that can be played on the acoustic guitar and sound complete. It's not reliant on the bombast or the sound of a you know the rhythm section you know being big so i guess for me it's the marriage of those two things you know the intricacy of songwriting detail of songwriting but then having it rock and having it being loud and having a certain amount of kind of swinging groove to it at the same time and that is something you know that i associate with the who as well especially maybe in later years you know like quadrophenia or you know or something like that where there's a lot of sophistication and there's there are arrangements and there's a lot of this stuff but they still haven't lost their who-ness you know they're still the who so i, I like that combination of things and i like artists that have that as well and i think because as a songwriter i came out of as a teenager kind of growing up and learning how to write songs and stuff it was very songwritery. It was very sit down on acoustic guitar and play the song beginning to end. It wasn't band oriented yet. So I think that's all there, you know, that I'm writing that way and that eventually it will be a big rock, but for now it's a band. <laughs> well, so say a little about the riff that establishes it at the beginning. When you're writing that, do you have in mind the lead guitar that then gets elaborated into a horn part or is it just the main chord progression here? Dun, 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 dun. Like, is that the intro you wrote, or did you write the dan, 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 dan? What exactly is going through your head as you're writing here? Most of the time, I'm just writing the chord. The rhythm guitar has a suggestion to it, and so I had that. But especially with Lenny, our lead guitar player, like, I let him, I, I leave holes, I guess, or I just, there are times when there's a hole, and then I say, Lenny, this is a good spot for a riff. So if you were to hear it in its acoustic form, you would hear some of that sort of like boogie rock stuff going on not necessarily the detailed lines of the lead guitar but a lot of the back and forth of the guitar shapes and stuff like that are all there so you know yeah lenny is, is definitely given free reign to fill holes with the lead riffs and i don't write those but there are songs where i've written the riff you know where it's been part of the songwriting process where i'm working on the song and then they're just toying around with the riff and, and i'm not a, a great guitar player, but I can I can do enough lead guitar that occasionally I'll hit a cool riff. I'll be like, okay, that's great. That's definitely got to be in there, and I'll teach it to the guitarist. But, but you know, yeah, in, in its acoustic form, Let Your Hair Fall Down still has that sort of chuglin, <laughs> boogie rock sort of kind of thing to it. And I think maybe the detail of the songwriting would obviously be more apparent. You know, there's a lot of chord changes, and there's a lot of little parts to it that are sort of counterintuitive to a song that has a big boogie rock gallop. But yeah, so it's, that personality is all there. The horn parts were arranged by a friend of mine, so I didn't have any input in that at all. I just sort of knew that I needed horns on the song and had him come in. And So that was just something for the recording to make it a little thicker, not something that's essential for when you play it live, say. 
Yeah, I mean, when we play live, we don't have it. I mean, I sort of miss it sometimes. I do plan on someday having a show where there's there's horns because it would be fun to, to do that stuff live. And there are, usually it seems like once a year. So we will have our friend Bill Swan, who was in Beulah, you know, kind of one of the great Bay Area pop bands and a great musician and a great trumpet player. And he'll come in and just play trumpet with us. And so that's kind of fun. He'll do pieces of the horn parts for, for songs that have them. You know, it just sort of felt... Every time I listen to the song, I just thought, God, I, I hear this texture. I hear this kind of idea. And I love horns in rock music. That's sort of a favorite thing of mine for a number of reasons. You know, it's not something we've done often, but I really wanted to shoot for it this time, for sure, for the song. And it felt more complete to me when it had that added. Well, it's interesting rhythmically when you mentioned the word boogie, which I had not put in here, that the history of rock drum, I mean, it's a big, stupid rock drum part boom ta, it's your standard but at various points in history this has gotten bigger and bigger you know we're of course the notorious 80s where if you had this song well you'd have a giant gated snare drum it would be it would be somehow we have to make it rock more it has to rock right <laughs> you know as if standing in front of a giant drum set is not powerful enough we have to somehow electronically make it sound even bigger so you could listen to it quiet and yet it would still I hear more and more in modern music they've done that even more with the bass that it's electronic bass or something you know that has these lower frequencies that were purposefully cut out of masters until recently because what they will damage your or maybe the the science has gotten better so they can push more out even just the decision to not overdo it is something that has a historical connotation at this point yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that. I mean, I, if our current producer, Scott Evans, was listening, I'm sure he'd be cracking up because I always fight to turn the drums down. <laughs> and almost to like an unhealthy degree do I want the drums turned down. And, and I love drums, and I actually started as a drummer, so I'm sort of passionate about them. But I don't like drum-dominated mixes in rock music for the most part. I mean, there are, there are exceptions, certainly, but I love guitars and I love just sort of, I like this kind of wall of things blending together. And I like when you're playing live, especially, and the drums are sort of fighting to cut through amplifiers and PA and stuff like that. And so I guess I'm always sort of drawn to that when we're recording or mixing. I'm always sort of trying to find ways to feel like the drums are physically behind the band and they're cutting through everything else, which is really loud. So in some ways, it's just this aesthetic thing that I have where I just don't like the drums being super loud. It's not a conscious choice in terms of a rejection of a specific recording style or, or trends or anything. It's more just sort of what I love hearing. I love like a, a you know good early 60s recording or something where you know they're all in the same room and the drums are just where they are, or like a chess blues recording or something. And, and those drums have tons of personality, but they're just not crystal clear element louder than everything else you know to me that sort of robs a band of its power i think i like to hear the band as sort of a collective whole and one of that partly that means that things aren't super loud on top of other things so that they all kind of have their own equal space and they're you can hear the guitars interacting and hear them giving and taking a little bit and yeah it's just sort of this picture i have in my head of what a band is sounds like at its best and that doesn't seem to be necessarily like you said you know there's there's sort of these ideas about what makes rock rock and at some point drums became and and i think you touched on it too that it's a largely a technological thing i mean the ability to gate drums and the ability to eq drums individually and then sort of all of these advances in mixing and, and technology that came along gave people the ability to focus all this sort of energy on the drums and there's a lot of wonderful things about that but then there's also the side where the drums just became like the loudest thing in the world and, and that's not how it feels to me when i'm playing or when i want to hear a band 
down. That's not what I'm listening to is that sort of drums over everything else thing. So And Let Your Hair Fall Down is a good example of that because those drums are actually really, really, really quiet. And the drummer's incredibly loud. Ian Lee has played drums on that song and he's a brilliant drummer and, and a really, really loud, dynamic drummer. But when you listen to that mix, the drums are actually startlingly quiet. And I think it was a bit of a controversy, but I think I won that battle ultimately. So say a little bit about the melody here. And I mean, what is this? I didn't have lyrics for any of these in advance. So grab your you by the shaking hands and straighten the crooked owl. What are you saying there? What is the repeated? When I write, I don't know what the songs are about while I'm writing them. So I, I kind of go in reverse and, and look at the songs when they're done and, and get in touch with what I was after later and and that song it's a really strange one at the time that i was writing it especially i was i had a lot of friends who were dating and you know a lot of people in their 30s late 30s and stuff dating and i've been you know married for a long time and my brief period of not being married was before internet dating and stuff so this it was sort of this foreign thing to me and i feel like when i was writing the song i was really calling from all of these stories that friends were telling me about the struggle to make connections, to sort of manage this balance of getting to know someone and having sexual attraction and just sort of like try to get through all the noise and and get to the point of connecting with someone in a romantic way or or a friendship way or however they were going to connect. So the song to me has this sort of sense of frustration to it. It's sort of like this desire to sort of break out of all of these constraints that we're trying, all these rules that we're trying to follow to figure out whether we should connect or not. Let's just connect. Let's just sort of get out of it. And I think it does have a very kind of lusty sexual sort of drive to it that's sort of like, hey, let's just go crazy, screw this stuff, you know, let's just let's, let's go wild. But at the same time, I think there's a, an anxiety to it as well. The chorus is it's an unfinished sentence, you know, it's, you know, what time is the right time to tell you? And it doesn't say what we're supposed to tell, you know, is it love? What time is the right time to tell you I love you? What time is the right time to tell you I'm done, I'm leaving? What time is the right time to tell you this is, I want to go to bed? I don't know how to finish that sentence. And when I play it sometimes, you know, I can kind of feel like I've got an answer for it, you know, and I'm in that zone. I think it's it's just got this tension to it about trying to connect, trying to communicate, wanting to be free of burden and constraint. But what does that mean? You know, what is that? Is that just sleeping together? Is that falling in love? Is that running away? I don't know exactly but those are just the kind of feelings that i kind of get from it now is there necessarily a connection a particularly tight connection between the meaning or the message of the words and the mood of the song as you're trying to put it out it sounds like not that it's sort of based on a musical intuition of this joyful boogie sort of thing and then you're kind of letting that inspire you and telling this story the way you describe this what is the right time to tell you that's a kind of a insecure, it's an anxiety expression, but there's no sense in the music that there's anxiety going on there, right? Yeah, I think you're right. I think for whatever reason, the music inspired this lyrical adventure and, and ideas, you know, were coming to mind and it was suggesting images and they were coming down and the music doesn't have the same tension that the lyrics do. And I think that's something I love. It creates its own kind of tension. For a lot of people who hear the song, it's it's just a sort of fun, you know, maybe a little quirky rock and song with these kind of neat elements to it and it's catchy. And, and I love that as pop 
because I love that aspect of pop music. Um, but the funnest part about pop music, or the most interesting, I guess, for me, is that you can do that lyrically, too. You can create this sort of sonic place and go somewhere with it, and lyrically you can take it somewhere else. And those two things play off each other in a really interesting way. If the lyrics had this anxiety to it, had this tension to it, but because the music is buoyant and the music has this drive to it, the lyrics are not heavy. They're not sort of stuck in that place. This potential that the lyrics could be something else, that they could have some of that joy to it, that they could have fun, they could have an energy to them. And at the same time, the music is buoyant and energetic and bright, but it also is connected to these lyrics. It has some tension to it, so it brings that energy together. I don't know. It's, it's sort of hard to explain, but I love that balance. I love that all the great ABBA songs are just devastatingly sad. Sure. Well, it's an evolution of that move that with the ABBA yeah. that you're talking about, or I was thinking about Big Star again, you know, you've got very unsubtle combination of buoyant music and really, really depressing lyrics. Well, in this song, they're not really, really depressing, but it's the fact that I'm singing about that I'm a little insecure, you know, that there's something that's an interesting juxtaposition in itself, that you can be a little more subtle about it than merely singing about how horrible everything is in the happy voice, that there's variations on that trick. And that's one of the joys of being a songwriter is playing with those things, not even consciously, but just sort of being plugged into that. When we were talking earlier about power pop as a subgenre, the people in power pop that I love are the ones that have that more sort of sophisticated level of craft where you've got those balances going on. And my sort of, the things about power pop that I don't like and that I'm always sort of uncomfortable with are the really shallow aspects, the ones where it's, you've got these seven elements. The Bay City Rollers might have the sound of those bands a little bit, but it's not, no, it's not the same thing. Yeah, we'll keep coming back to Big Star, I suppose, because they are such a fascinating band and a huge influence. And Chilton's writing is, the songs are tense, the songs are strange, there's a lot of really dark things, a lot of kind of weird things are going on in those songs emotionally. And I think we know, as somewhat sophisticated listeners and people who now have spent decades listening to his songs, that's part of his whole thing, was this searching for these kind of strangeness and thing, darkness and things, but perfectly capable of writing something that's just sort of gloriously bright and infectious. And again, there's that aspect of Big Star that has the boogie rock and the, the glam rock and that other stuff. And I think that was part of it for Chilton at that time as a songwriter was that had a lot more strangeness to it, that had a lot more ability to have tension and to have some anxiety in it. It played well with that, and that the two sides of the coin really balance each other out kind of nicely in that way. And those, my favorite bands and songwriters and stuff, I've always sort of done that. All right, so you've got this kind of wacky horn thing that comes in. <laughs> So what's the genesis of that? I was trying to think of what culturally is this. For me, it's associated more with certain, I don't know, TV shows or movies from the 70s or something. But what what does that connote for you? That's a good call. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. It's funny, that song, when we play it live and when it was originally recorded, there's just gaps there. You know, it's just sort of like this, like it's just kind of like blocks of, you know, chord progression and those holes. And um, I hired my friend Jameson to write the horn part thinking he was focused mostly on like the chorus and some other parts of the song. And when it came back, he had filled these holes with this line, you know, this, this really kind of melodic stuff. And so I don't know necessarily what his inspiration for those was, but I loved it. You know, I just thought, oh my God, this is, I never would have thought of this. And it's funny that you mentioned like a 70s TV theme, because I totally can hear that. And Jameson has a pretty diverse background. He's a really accomplished horn player and, and composer. He's also a big prog 
fan. He's a big Yes fan. And I kind of wonder if just his instinct as a writer as a composer is to fill those kind of holes with melody, you know, and yes, does not have a sense of humor like that. That's, there's no, <laughs> I see what you're saying. But Prague is not entirely humorless. I'm not a, a, an expert on it, I suppose, but I, I agree with you. It does. It's got this kind of fondness to it that maybe we don't associate with Prague, but it can. And, and I think maybe just his thinking was like, Hey man, there's a space where I can really plug in some melody. And, and he did. And so that's where that, came from. I really, I didn't expect it. And I think, you know, at first I was sort of like, oh, well, that's a little too much. That's nice, but maybe we should leave that out. And then just the more, you know, I lived with it, the more I was like, this is really fun. This, I love your response that it felt like a 70s TV show because I just, you know, those things are phenomenal. You know, this, who was it, Mike Post? Is that the guy that did a lot of those things like Rockford Files and stuff like that? But uh, but I love that stuff, you know, it was just, its own fun subgenre of pop music. Well, let's shift gears and get to the second song. This is Hats. We have a ballad. Show the country part that for some reason, I think it's the birds' fault, that Power Pop, while it could just be Bay City Rollers, big happy chords singing bubblegum songs, like, no, good Power Pop, what I actually associate with the term, always has is this flip side. Now we're going to slow down and bring in some country. And in this case, it's country with... Again, I think of Gene Clark from The Birds and his solo stuff with some kind of little slightly jazzy chord progression, some, a few major sevenths in there. You know, the Eagles even had some harmonies like you hear in here. One of the main reasons I wanted to talk about this song is because it represents an aspect of my writing and my influence that rarely kind of makes it to the band stage, <laughs> to records, and certainly never live, or almost never live. When I was a kid, my dad played guitar and sang, and he was not a songwriter. He mostly played socially, you know, at parties and family things. But his repertoire was great 70s singer-songwriter radio stuff. He loved Jim Croce. He loved Gordon Lightfoot, John Denver. Things that had a little bit of country to them, things that had some folk to them, not kind of rural folk, but like what we think of sort of like 60s folk revival type stuff. And he was a great finger-picking guitar player and a great singer. And so my earliest musical memories are of those songs being played in this kind of intimate way. And so even though much later on, I went on my own musical journey and I was learning how to play instruments and beginning to to love songwriting. I think formatively, those kinds of songs are very much in my musical DNA. And the idea of playing a song solo on a guitar and it sounding complete, I had this very strong memory of listening to Jim Croce records later and only kind of knowing them through my dad originally and just being like, oh man, there's all this crap on these records, you know, the strings and all this other stuff. But it's really like, man, I just really want to hear those guitars. But it's always been a part of my songwriting to have this sort of complete on acoustic guitar feeling. And almost every song, even the big rockers, at some stage of the songwriting process are played extensively quietly on acoustic guitar as I fiddle around with them and kind of figure them out and explore and edit them a little bit. So every once in a while, a song just is in that sphere. You know, Hats is in, in that sphere. There's actually two songs on the upcoming record that are like that, that are finger-picked, quiet, acoustic ballad-type songs. And I've always, again, been drawn to that as well. Like, I love, like, you know, like a Neil Young record that has its electric half and its acoustic half. I love hearing songwriters play acoustic versions of big, loud songs, and I love songs that survive in that sphere. And I still love 
I still love Gordon Lightfoot and Jim Croce and that kind of stuff. And later on, you mentioned Gene Clark, who's a, a huge hero of mine. And he also, after the birth, made a self-titled record. I guess it's called White Light sometimes. But that record, you know, is very stripped down and, and very songwritery and has predominantly a lot of acoustic guitar kind of foundation. And so that's, yeah, that's just something that still resonates with me. And, and Hats is an example that I really wanted to focus on because it's surrounded by a full band record and it's never really played live. And, you know, I sort of think it's overlooked a little bit. I, I'm proud of it. And it represents a big part of my musical life. It doesn't get a lot of airtime in the band context. Here's Hats from Fixed Hearts 2011. Tried to hang your head up on the Watching as the pegs dissolve away Smiling as you took a swig and sat back Knowing every head will have its day The sugar-dusted fingerprints On the plans you instigated But look What you created A playful toss across the room Of the song that slowly fades away The sugar-dusted fingerprints On the plans you instigated But look What you created saying this is meant to be 
complete in and unto itself, just with you, am I interpreting this correctly, that this is almost like a solo tune, or are the vocal harmonies like an essential part of your initial conception of this song? They weren't, but that particular lineup of the band, we had a guy named Mike Derrick, who was in the band at the time, who played acoustic rhythm guitar and sang harmonies, and that was basically his job in the band, was just those two things. And he's extraordinarily good at it. And in the full band sort of context, it's sort of a decoration thing. You know, it's it's cool to have the acoustic rhythms. Those harmonies are important. But they're subservient to the general full band sound, and they're not out front. But again, when we would practice, we would have vocal practices, basically. And, and when we would do that, we'd be playing these songs in a totally different way. You know, they were all about the vocals and all about the interactions of the acoustic guitars. And when I was writing songs for Fixed Hearts, and Hats was one of the songs that was sort of in the pool of songs that I was drawing from. You know, it works on its own. It works as a solo acoustic song, but I also knew, oh my goodness, this is going to be one where he's really going to be able to bring that second acoustic guitar and bring his harmony stuff to it. It'll almost take on this sort of like Crosby, Stills, and Nash kind of around the campfire sort of thing. It wasn't part of my thinking in the writing of the song, but it, it just lent itself so perfectly to, again, this aspect of the band that wasn't really apparent, I think, in other contexts. So was that a matter of when William Duke, who not only was your old bassist, but wrote a good chunk of the songs, and it sounded like, listening to that first record, that it's really, it's very seldom is your voice by itself. It was like, the sound of the band is an Everly Brothers sort of thing, because you had that tight harmony thing, and he was the top of that. So it sounds like when he left the band, so you got a new bass player, and you got Mike here to sort of fill that vocal hole. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah, and harmony singing was one of the sort of core elements we had talked about in starting the band. It's something we all loved, a strength in records that we loved. And you mentioned the Everly Brothers, who are maybe my favorite band. So that's always been something that I've kind of kept in my mind is, you know, that I love that element and what that brings. That's exactly right. When Billy was out of the band, we lost his great songs, but we also lost his great singing. And so since then, we've had different people come in and harmony that harmony singer and that's to me looking at the grand picture of the band so far as we've gone along that's i think of the phases of the band largely as the vocal personality of each period of time you know like oh that's the period of time when mike was in the band and it had this sort of element to it you know and then mike left and and we went through this period with this different vocal blend or whatever and, and so that's one of the sort of ever-changing but to me at least ever interesting aspects of each version of the band and each record is you know what's going on vocally what's different and hats is i think a great example of mike garrick's kind of thing and his kind of harmony sort of him at his best really in, in some ways and i'm glad that song is on the record partly to show off him doing and he's doing the sort of the more detailed acoustic guitar stuff too which he was also great at so it's just one of the things that was great about that version of the band and here's an example and talk about what this song is actually about is this another one that grew out of the mood and you were not quite sure what it means or did you have something very definite i get the overall sense the lyric that initially jumps out is the first part of the bridge and the case for liquor grows stronger and the nights grow longer you know that okay so this is one of those mournful country songs talking about the people's plans that aren't quite working out tell me a little more what you had in mind here it's definitely a song that came without much planning that's just generally how i write sort of i'm putting lyrical ideas and images together but this song got to a point for me where i felt like there's something a little more concrete going on like my lyric style tends to be somewhat impressionistic it tends to be sort of mood driven and this song 
felt like there was a scene from a movie kind of in it. You know, like there was like a character and there was like some details needed to be nailed down, not necessarily in a linear narrative way, but something a little more grounded. So that song is actually a co-write. I reached out to my friend Paula Carino, who's a really brilliant songwriter that I've known for a long time and whose strengths as a songwriter in some ways are not the opposite of mine, but very, very different. And she's really good at creating characters in songs, putting details in songs that don't feel forced. You know, they feel like, almost like she's a, a short story writer, giving you these really important little details that you can build a story from. And so I went to her with, I think the song was basically finished and structurally and it had lyrics for every part. But I said, you know, hey, listen, this seems to be going somewhere, but I feel like some of these lines are awkward or I'm just being too vague. And so she changed some lyrics. She tightened up some lyrics. And I think what it came down to is we both started to feel like this was the narrator of the song, whoever that is, is struggling with, you point out the line in the bridge that to me is sort of the cue that it is that it's an alcoholic, that it's, or, you know, someone struggling with substance abuse or maybe even, you know, mental illness. Well, it's the case for liquor. Things are miserable enough. The case for liquor. <laughs> I didn't necessarily see even that liquor was necessarily involved. This is kind of the way I feel a lot, like in, in terms of mm-hmm. being depressed. Like, yeah, I should be the kind of person that's drinking right now. I'm not, <laughs> I don't actually do that in my house or. No, that's a good point. It is, it's about, I guess it's about that urge, maybe that urge to, maybe it's not even a full blown alcoholic. Maybe it's just someone who's like that temptation. Like you said, they're depressed, they're going through some sort of struggle. There's this losing equilibrium kind of feeling about it. In my mind, I guess I associate it with, hey, this person is pain-killing, essentially, or looking for that or feeling that need to do that, you know, so that, yeah, the case for liquor goes through. Yes, it is the rational thing to do to deaden the pain. That's that's the case for it, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, no, it's a good point that you make about that, that it's... It isn't necessarily, you know, sort of this portrait of someone in the midst of an alcoholic downhill slide, but that urge is certainly there. That need to kill some sort of pain is there, whatever the cause of that may be. And there's also, I guess to me, there's sort of a sense of tedium about it, like this little vignette of someone's life that isn't a dramatic moment, that isn't a turning point, that isn't a breaking point necessarily. It's a little everyday sort of tedium that's, if not contributing to this melancholy is certainly not helping. It isn't the dramatic moment in the story. It's the quiet moment in the story, but it's got this tension to it. It's got this potential danger. This things are not going well. This person is needing some sort of, you know, release. But this isn't the moment where things give. This is the moment where things are just sort of in this uncomfortable holding pattern. Well, the fact that the key line, the knowing every hat will have its day, it's not even an action where it's just knowing something. What does that phrase actually mean, though? I have no idea. And I and I believe that line is actually probably Paula's line. Okay. That's, oh, all right. So that was not like the thing that kicked off the song. Okay. This was a, a latter elaboration. No. And, and I seem to have a memory of sort of fighting for that line a little bit because it felt like it was an important line. I think we probably had multiple options for it. And I think we were going back and forth and talking about things and, and not necessarily talking about meaning, but talking about that. how does this fit? And that line to me just felt important. And I honestly can't tell you exactly what that image means, but I think you've hit on it partly, which is that it lacks definition. It's this sort of feeling of expectation of, you know, of, of definition, but it's not defining anything. And that, that sounds just preposterously vague, I know, but it just felt important. <laughs> well, even having your day, that could be like a good thing. You know, every dog will have his day, or it could just be that there's a plan 
there's a time we'll get around to everything eventually. It sounds less enthusiastic than the meek will inherit the earth, you know, in terms of <laughs> this will happen eventually. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and I think you, you mentioned it earlier, too, this sort of expectation of something's got to give kind of feeling. This moment that the song takes place in is clearly not the moment when the hat has its day or when anything profound is happening you know, in terms of change, but this expectation of change, the bridge is sort of dark. It's sort of like, hey, you know, this is the painkiller. This maybe that's the change. You know, maybe it's not a, a positive change or the realization of something good. But knowing every hat will have it today, that's sort of comical. I mean, there's sort of something sadly funny about it that as a line, and, and it is partly that sense of like, hey, I need a break. Something good must happen, right? You know, like it can't all be stuckness. There's got to be movement. Something good has to come out of this. And I wish I had like a notebook that had other options so I could tell you what we were, you know, going, other choices would be. But that line felt really important. It felt sort of central to me, partly just for that sense of something's got to give. There's got to be some sort of growth or some sort of breakthrough. Well, I'm throwing in the bit of personification there about giving human qualities to a hat. It brings to mind the Tom Waits song, The Piano Has Been Drinking. The piano goes through all these different inanimate objects and giving responsibility for the miserable behavior onto those things. That I don't know. Yeah, it's a good recipe for a wry little touch of humor. <laughs> Yeah, and that's such a great thing about Tom Waits as a writer is that he's so he's so object-oriented in that way, and he personifies objects, and he gives them meaning, and he gives them, and they're all sort of projections, reflections of human experiences, but it's he's got that eye for what is it in this scene, what can we project all the meaning of this scene onto, you know, and, and in the early days, you know, when it was sort of the saloon singer environment that he was you know, involved in, yeah, the, the piano or whatever, and, and maybe now it would be something, you know, like a rusty piece of farm equipment or something, I'm not sure, but, you know, that's something that's a great thing about Tom Waits as a writer. And that's something that my friend Paula does, too. You know, Paula can bring in a detail about a city that she lives in. She lives in Brooklyn or, or a pop culture reference or something that's not a person, that's not an emotion, but it can carry the weight of those things, can represent a person or an emotion and transcend its state as an object and become something more meaningful. And I think clearly the hat in this song is, is an element that's reflecting a lot about a character that otherwise seems to be sort of static. All right, well, so let's finish off with the end of the song. The Tell me about this little piano outro. It was pretty unexpected to me hearing it the first time. The palette is, has been established in an old Gene Clark song. You have the acoustic guitars and you have the nice little harmonies, but you don't have this. So where, where did this come from? It works really well. Originally, there was a guitar solo there. I'm almost embarrassed to say that I think I probably played it, which is maybe why it's not there anymore. But And it was fine. Like you said, palette-wise, it was complete. It was the acoustic guitar song with the acoustic guitar solo at the end. And it definitely needed something at the end. It needed a little bit of melody to kind of close it out. And our producer for that record and the next record, actually, Paul Tyler, he didn't like the guitar solo that much. And we just sort of felt like, okay, this is flat. It doesn't go anywhere. It just sort of it plays a nice little melody, and then the song's over. And we've been to acoustic guitar land, and now we're leaving acoustic guitar land. I think that means you're supposed to pull out the 12 string. Isn't that what that means? <laughs> just play the same thing, but brighter. Yeah, exactly. And it might have even been something like that. Who knows? what? It, I can't even remember what the solo was. And so we just sort of sat on it for a while. And I, I don't remember when or where, but I just sort of thought, you know, like, this needs saloon 
piano, <laughs> you know, it's a sort of drug. And, you know, maybe it's a Neil Young thing, too. Maybe it's that piano solo that's clearly not Jules Holland playing a really sophisticated line, but is got this creaky kind of feel to it. And so Paul actually played that, and I wasn't even there. I just said, hey, Paul, it needs a piano solo. Can you play it? And Paul's not a piano player, but he was like, um, okay. And so he just kind of came back with that, and he had dialed in the sound, and he had done sort of everything all on his own. And it was, I don't know, to me, it just really brought it to life at the end, partly because it is unexpected, but it's also just such a, a sad, pretty sound. It was just one more sort of melancholy beautiful element that came along. It was just sort of a shot in the dark in terms of like not really knowing what to do with the end of that song, but knowing that something had to happen and that the guitar solo that I had come up with was clearly not going to get the job done. She said this is not part of your live set, this song, correct? Or is have you reworked it? I think I played it live once solo acoustic, which I rarely, rarely ever do, so I don't even want to say that for sure. But yeah, as far as I know, never really been played live. All right, let's get our third song out there. Elizabeth Park from the same album, but you said this is older. This is not 2011. This is one of the first songs for the band that the band was playing live. How, how far back does this go? The reason I wanted to bring this one up is because it actually predates the band, and it, it was a funny process. So this was actually a Belle de Gama song, briefly. I think it was played live once, and there was a demo that we recorded of it. But when we broke that band up and I started talking about starting the Blackbirds, one of the things that we decided to do was to literally just shelve everything we had done previously. None of those songs were going to be Blackbird songs. They were all in the past. And so I had an entire second record worth of songs that I just put in, in the drawer and didn't even think about. And I had almost forgotten those songs. Like I didn't even really know them anymore. And we weren't playing them and they were just gone. And then when we parted ways with Billy, the first bass player in the Blackbirds. We had been in the process of putting songs together for Fixed Hearts, and not only was Billy not in the band anymore, but his songs for Fixed Hearts were no longer there. And so there was a sort of challenge on my part of like, okay, well, I have to write a bunch of stuff. You know, I really have to dig deep and come up with more songs to fill this record out. And so I did. I wrote a lot of stuff. But I also thought, hey, I should go back and just see if there's anything lying around that's cool that I can... I think I was thinking that I would just take pieces of it that I would like sort of, oh, there's a great chorus. You know, I'll build a new song around that or something. And when I went back and heard Elizabeth Park, it just kind of blew me away because it was what I had been sort of striving for as a songwriter in the Blackbirds. Like when I was thinking about, I want to take my songwriting to the next level. There are aspects that I really want to pursue in the process of writing. And I had already done it, but I sort of hadn't even noticed it. You know, like Elizabeth Park to me represents this growth and this sort of next stage of songwriting. But at the time it didn't. At the time it was just sort of a song that I distinctly remember nobody giving me any feedback on it. Like, like I just replayed it and they learned their parts or whatever. They made up parts and it just, no one ever said, hey, that's a really cool song. Or, hey, I really like this. It just sort of happened and then I abandoned it. But when I went back and listened to it, I was like, oh, geez, this is an example of what I've been trying to accomplish. And here it is predating the current band. So... Yeah, it was just an interesting process for me of discovering that I had already made some leaps as a songwriter and just hadn't really recognized them. Christmas candles burning bright in those working class 
have horns on that many tunes but we just happen to pick two of them here <laughs> I, know, I love horns and rock so much that i just pick the two examples of the three whatever yeah I, I know it's kind of funny it wasn't a deliberate choice to focus on songs with horns on them but they are some of my favorite songs and i do love horns and rock so it's maybe subconsciously i couldn't resist well, and I also detect, like, as with the first song, some sort of artificial mixing that usually in a horn part like this, the trumpet should really stick out. You should really hear the but like you have purposely mixed that back so that it almost seems like it's being introduced at the end when the horn part happens without the vocals. You kind of have to focus, but a trumpet just cuts through everything. So that seems obviously a deliberate choice in the mix and not just something that happens. Yeah, well, I, Paul, the producer, and I, and he also mixed it. I think we 
we're on the same page in terms of wanting everything to be a blend. Like the instrumental leads were not to stand out as instrumental leads. It was supposed to they were supposed to interact with the guitars, and the guitars were supposed to interact with the bass, and everything was supposed to be this unique blend. You know, it's possible we even talked about when the bird started adding layers and stuff when they kind of after the initial original five-piece birds when things started to get more ornate. There's a lot of horns on that stuff, and a lot of times you don't even really realize that there's horns on that stuff because they're sort of blended into the harmonies, they're blended into the guitars. And so we kind of wanted that a little bit. Like, it, it does have a little bit of a punctuating kind of soul thing, especially on the, the choruses, but yeah, I wanted it to be this blend. of They could be vocal harmonies. They didn't necessarily have to be horns, or they could be a cluster of guitar notes. It didn't have to be, you know, there's a trumpet or whatever. It was just sort of like a, a texture, a detail. And Bill Swan who I mentioned earlier from Beulah, wrote that part and played trumpet on it. And he's a real arrangement-oriented thinker as well. He and I share a real love of Graham Downs from the Verlaines, which is like one of our favorite bands that he and I have always bonded over. And that's another guy who uses horns and strings and things like that in this very support role. I mean, they're beautiful parts, they're catchy, but they're not the lead, they're not the hook, they're part of the hook. And I think without asking him, I would guess that that's sort of Bill's thinking too. Like, I'm not here to be the trumpet guy who takes over and, and it's Herb Albert. <laughs> I'm the guy who's here to support this chorus and build this part that functions as another instrument within the group. And so I think that's the way that horn part works for me. And then, like you said, at the end, when the vocals are no longer there, all of a sudden you're like, what is this horn thing going on? And there's all this detail. And when you go back, you realize it's been there all along, but it's not. It's subservient to the song. It's part of the, the process. Yeah, so that thicket you built at the beginning, I was even just trying to figure out, like, how many guitars are in there? What's going on? It sounds like maybe there's a 12-string or an octaver or something. It's a tightly knit little tapestry. It's definitely a 12-string. Yeah, it's a funny mix, and it's not my favorite mix. I think there's aspects that were gained and aspects that were lost in that mix, and it's live. That song is a real rock song. It's almost Thin Lizzy. It's funny. Whenever we've had to change drummers, we always use Thin Lizzy as an example for that song because it really is the boys are back in town and it's kind of upbeat drum stuff, which is hard to do. But when Paul mixed it, he really focused on what I think were the popular elements of it. So the 12-string guitar is the predominant guitar in there. My guitar, which is more of sort of a chunky rock rhythm guitar, is pretty low in the mix. There's acoustic rhythm stuff going on, but he really wanted to focus on the 12-string. And then the bass is, is super melodic, and it moves a lot. So that's maybe louder than it would be in, normally in a song like that, too. So it, it's a strange mix, and I, I've come to like it, but it's not to me, what the band really sounded like in some ways. And so it's it's a strange version of the song to me, even though I'm proud of it. It's different than how I would have done it had I been the one in charge fully. But that was part of you know, the process of collaborating with a producer is sort of trusting some ways and going in a different direction. And, and that record is a really bright record and, and there's a lot of 12 string on it and there's a lot of cleanness to it. And that was really, Paul was really pushing for that. He was really, he liked that sort of crisp, defined spaciousness in terms of things. Whereas the band live, especially at that time, was grittier. You know, I think it was a little darker. So it's interesting in that way. Now, structurally, I noticed, I mean, this part we've been talking about is just the intro, but it happens so many times. And when it gets to the verse, the verse is like two lines and then it hits the chorus, which is basically one line. And then we're back to the intro hook again, that you're just diving out as if the parts where the lyrics comes in are just short diversions before we can get back to the fiesta that is the central theme here. That's funny, yeah. I hadn't really thought of it that way. I think partly because there's a lot of lyrics crammed into those little tiny verses. They're pretty dense. 
Yeah, this is sort of your most Dylan-esque, both in the way you're singing and the number of words stuck in there. Yeah, that's funny. I hadn't thought of Dylan-esque, but it definitely has that feel. It also feels to me, at least when I'm singing it, uh, sort of like an Ian Hunter thing almost, too, where like it's not about a, a very specific pretty melody, the words coming out and, and delivery of the words. And, and that is a very Dylan thing, and that's certainly where Ian Hunter would have gotten that from, too, I think. But yeah, you're right. It's, it's, a, it's a real kind of barrage of words, and they're percussive, and they have to get crammed in there, and, and they have to get out of the way, because here comes that instrumental bit again. But yeah, it's, it, I hadn't thought of it as being these kind of short little pieces surrounded by the instrumental pieces, but you're right, it really is. And can you say a little about the specific meanings or overall theme of the song lyrically? I mean, it has, now that you bring up the boys are back in town, it sort of has some of that nostalgic, but I'm not exactly sure, you're talking about the fireworks of your youth or something like that. What's going on here? This is a really interesting one in that regard, because I think, first of all, it's a song that we play all the time. Like, the minute I introduced it to the Blackbird set, I think it's been played at every show. So I've had a lot of time to sort of inhabit it and think about it and play it. And the genesis of the images in that song are a very specific memory I have, not way back to childhood, but I think probably in my mid to late 20s, of driving through... Hartford, Connecticut, in the winter, and the specific places mentioned in the song are real, like Elizabeth Park is an actual park in Hartford, and Scarborough Street is not the street we were on, a street we drove past. And I wasn't thinking about a song at the time, I was just, for whatever reason, very attuned to the atmosphere. It was winter, it was snowing, it was Christmas time, I was noticing architecture, I was seeing people, the kids playing in the street, just this sort of feeling, and it felt very rich to me, and so I sort of absorbed it, and it stuck with me, and for whatever reason, when it came time to, when I was playing around with this song, those images started just coming back, and they just fell into place, and I and I was inhabiting this experience, and I've since come to a much more specific feel for what this song is about, and I think what I feel when I play it is that the places that we live, the cities and towns that we live in, have histories. And things happen in those towns. They can be famous things, or they can be just individual people living in those places do. But they have a kind of resonance. Maybe a street is named after them. Maybe it's the most famous thing that happened in that town. Maybe it's the thing that people think of when they hear that town's name, whatever it is. And... Hartford is sort of a notoriously boring city. (laughs) It's not a city that people associate with a great nightlife. But there was a point in time in history when Hartford was one of the most culturally rich cities in America. It was sort of the first place that a lot of avant-garde art from Europe came before it was really adopted more generally before it even made it to New York. It would go to Hartford. And Wallace Stevens, you know, probably the great high modernist poet of that time, lived in Hartford and wrote in Hartford. And it has this history. And I wasn't thinking about those things when I wrote it, but it occurred to me that it was a great city to think about in terms of the resonance of history, no matter what's going on in the city now. Right now, Hartford is not the most exciting place in the world. But there's still, if you live there, if you travel through there, there's all these echoes of things that have happened there, the people that lived there before you. The chorus is all around us, these things that are missing all around us will find. And it's maybe it's a more sort of action-driven chorus than I even really realized, but it's sort of this hopeful feeling of like, there's a life before us that we can draw on. There's inspiration, there's maybe positive energy, maybe it's comfort, whatever, but we live in places and times where things just have happened and we can draw on those things. They're part of our legacy, they're part of our past and we built on those things, and we can call upon those things. And when we've been playing the song lately, I've been 
thinking a lot about a friend of mine named Alicia, who died, unfortunately, earlier this year, who was very young, and she was a world traveler. She loved to travel, and she loved to be exposed to culture and new things, and just sort of had this relentless energy for learning about something different and being a part of it. And so the song has, for me at least, taken on some of that, that sense of drawing on inspiration, drawing on the past, drawing on things around us. For whatever reason, on this car ride, I was really feeling this environment that I was in, driving through Hartford, Connecticut. And so whatever that was, it inspired the song, certainly, at some level, but it also was just a state to be in, a state of being receptive to what's going on in the place around me, what's it built out of. you got all this hope, and we will find and... But we'll never cross the river with all the prompt. What is this little note of dissension that then goes into this chromatic, slightly strange again, like the horn part in the first song? You got this slightly wacky thing to add some interest here. know where that bridge comes from. It is dark. And maybe that's just my own melancholy coming through, basically. But it is sort of like this frustration kind of thing. Yeah, and maybe it's, looking back, maybe it is sort of like the frustration of if you're in a place like Hartford now, and you're just like, why is this place so boring? Why is this place not living up to its potential? (laughs) You know, why do we feel stuck here? Maybe that's the counter to the sense of hope in the chorus is, shoot, we're never going to get anywhere. This is We're stuck in this place. Nothing's happening. Nothing's going on. Maybe the bridge is saying that and the chorus is saying, no, 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 we can we can find it. There's something here. It's funny. I don't think I even realized until you just pointed it out that there is a river that runs through Hartford. So maybe that was what I was thinking of, too, is, again, being more geographically specific than I even realized. But yeah, I think it is really melancholy, and maybe that is the counter to the chorus. And just the fact that the whole thing is a shuffle. I referred to this main part as being the big fiesta, but it's not like in our first song where it's a big rock straight. It's a little shuffle thing. We're just shuffling along. You know, it's a different feel. It's still sort of jubilant, but, you know, it doesn't really open up until you get that thing at the end with the trumpet is finally out and now that it's clear. It's a little more subdued, a little more, I guess I'm still saying Baroque. I think you're right. I just love a shuffle and it's a nightmare for every drummer that's ever played with us because you just don't do that in rock because you don't shuffle. And we have a ton of shuffle songs, we have a lot of them, and I can't explain it except that it just feels really good to me a lot of the time to, to write in that sort of feel. I think the in some ways, Paul's production on this song does lighten it to a certain extent. Again, live, it does have more of the Thin Lizzy end of things, where it's a little tougher. It's got a little more like punch, and it's a little gentler on the record. But those kind of details, too, those transitional details, turn around from a bridge back to a verse, or from one section to a song, are things that I really thrive on. I really I love figuring out, okay, I've got these cool things going on. Can I find a really interesting way to get back to verse? Or can I find a really interesting way to transition out of this thing and make it an event you know like this is something that's going to happen it becomes its own little hook you know and so as a writer i love that kind of stuff i'd love to hear it and i get excited when i'm put in a position to write them so to me it's funny it's probably not apparent in this particular song but that's also something that i really was encouraged to pursue more in as a result of songwriting of scott miller from game theory who was really good at that kind of stuff really good at little instrumental transitions and details like that that move the song along in a cool way. And so that part doesn't necessarily sound like something he would have written, but the idea certainly is that little transition from the bridge back into the verse is definitely in the school of that songwriting. 
Well, yeah, I'm glad you brought him up finally. I was going to ask you at the beginning about it's listed on your wiki page that he was your mentor in some way. And I certainly hear when I talk about, oh, this sort of wacky little gesture or something like definitely his material comes to mind, which is related to the big star field of power pop, but had quite a bit of advances in it, not only in just the lyrical complexity, but just putting in a lot of more funny chords and (laughs) making things generally more interesting. So you could churn out that many albums as opposed to big star, which by album three was exploding in chaos. And that was pretty much it. Yeah. I have sort of in my head, this sort of preposterous line of songwriting, guitar pop songwriting, and and people at certain stages who elevate it in some way or another, just on a purely craft level, not popularity or influence even necessarily, but just people who added some element that really elevated the potential for the form. And to me, Scott Miller is one of the best examples of that. And Alex Chilton was as well, but again, like you mentioned very briefly, and and Chilton, in fact, you know, pretty much disowned that. He really didn't think that he had done anything of value. He wanted to focus on other aspects of his career, whereas Scott was much more confident in his ability to live in that world and continue to grow with it. But Scott was such a sophisticated songwriter, but never, ever lost sight of the fun of great rock pop songwriting. And he and I had a lot in common as songwriters that we talked a lot about as friends, but he came from very much the art rock side of things. He was really into, I mean, we were both into Bowie quite a bit, but he was more into like the rock and music side of things. He was a bit of a prog fan, big Yes fan, and he really had no interest in country music, roots music, much. When he heard something that he liked, he liked it, but that was not part of his. For him, it was the Beatles were really sort of ground zero. Yes, where country music comes in as a joke occasionally that Ringo sings on, and that's about it. There's nothing twangy, really, in the Scott Miller catalog. I think there's nothing that you sort of feel like the blues influence of rock and roll that much, which to me is a testament to Scott's songwriting that he could be so powerful and so, to my mind, at least genuinely rock and roll without having that, because I most great songwriters that are rock and roll in some way, that root comes through. You know, there's some rockabilly, there's country, there's something. Even in Elvis Costello, who had a very distinctive style, he always played his roots to some extent. There's always a reference, or whether consciously or not. And I have a lot of that. I have a lot of country. I have a lot of, you know, again, going back to my dad playing you know, Jim Croce and, and Gordon Lightfoot and folk music and stuff. So that's always been huge to me. And so that was a, a divergent point for the two of us as songwriters, but an interesting one, at least to me, that Scott wrote the way he did. It has an emotional weight to it, as well as the intellectual weight to it. It's really impressive. But yeah, I sort of think of him as one of those evolutionary step-forward songwriters. And when I discovered his music, which was, I had already been a songwriter, I was already sort of on my path. When I heard his stuff, it was a real confirmation for me of things that I was doing. It was like, oh, okay, this does have possibility. Like, here's a guy who's mastered it and is doing some of the things that I care about. And, you know, so I need to learn from this and follow this path and not be discouraged. And it was partly just because I think he introduced a lot of things, sometimes very subtle things, but into songwriting that were important to me. But I hadn't, I wasn't really that good at it yet, but I also hadn't heard other people nailing it yet. And when I heard him, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, here's the guy. <laughs> here's the guy who's doing this thing. And I, I need to be paying attention. All right. Well, if I ever do a different kind of episode, I thought about this a little of like, how do I deal with people that I really want to talk to, but are deceased? Can I get people that know their work well enough to talk with me and sort of do the same thing of analyze some of their songs? But I'm not looking at that quite yet. I have enough live people that want to talk about their music to get through. That's a great idea, though. I like that quite a bit. It's not like a oral history kind of 
approach, but maybe a little more analytical. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Introduce the last song, All in Light, from We Need the Rain, 2013. Another big single, another shuffle. It's a shuffle. <laughs> so g- give us a little intro to this, and then we'll, we'll be done here. Quick funny story about this song is that the demo for this song was recorded on top of a loop of the intro for Cheap Tricks, Hello Kitties. Because I just love that ah. feel. And the song had that feel, and I was just like, hey, you know, because I like to make my demos interesting if I can. So I just did that. And it turned out that was really the feel of the song. It's got this sort of like swaggy, glamoury kind of thing to it, that that part of Cheap Trick, the glam rock end of their influence with T-Rex and the Roy Wood sort of side of things. It's a song about love and about how love can be found in all kinds of circumstances, no matter how seemingly dire or whatever. And so to me, those two things just felt right, that it would sort of be, have a song that has some grit to it lyrically, but it's it really is a very up positive song ultimately well thank you so much for sharing i really i'm glad to have the opportunity to listen to this stuff and to listen to it repeatedly because to me the sort of baroque aspect i referred to in the first place is a little bit something to get past like i'm a little less subtle in my power poppiness and so to have a (laughs) keith moon under there you know i just went and saw sloan last night the canadian band which uh oh yeah yeah, yeah. there's certain similarities to your songwriting in there but there's sort of nothing subtle Mm -hmm. about it or weezer you know another that just kind of hits you over the head with the power but there's so much joy packed into a song like all on light or some of these other ones but yet maybe following the Scott Miller direction. If you really like, we're only going to play the creamiest, most joyful power pop gestures, then you can't do (laughs) such crazy things with the chord progressions as you do and that Scott does or did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the curse and the blessing of it. I mean, it's to me, it's what makes it rich and unique and kind of idiosyncratic and individual. And it is at some level, it's just instinctively what I do. It's what I want to do. And I can't change that or I I wouldn't be able to do it and feel (laughs) good about myself doing it. So that's just what I love. I love the big fat hook that also has this crazy amount of detail to it and subtlety to it. And it probably does prevent a certain number of people from ever really spending the time with the stuff and recognizing how cool and interesting it is, which is a shame, but to me, it's what gives it depth. It gives it a life. You can go back to these songs a lot and there's a lot there and, and it'll be rewarding and you'll still have the, the hook. You'll still hit the chorus. You know? It'll still come along and, and sweep you away if you let it. All right. Well, thank you so much again. Uh, have a great rest of your day. Thank you. I really appreciate it.
Thank you so much to Bradley. Please check out his stuff at ByeBlackbirds.com. And I hope this episode served as inspiration to you to check out some of the mutual influences that Bradley and I talked about. Right, Big Star and Gene Clark. And above all, Scott Miller, whose band was Game Theory in the 80s and then The Loud Family in the 90s. Sadly, all three of those guys died prematurely. So I can't have them on the show, but I will link to some of their work from the blog post corresponding to this episode at NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. Hope everybody's having a happy holiday season. Make some good New Year's resolutions to do a lot of new music. I know I'm doing that. Doing this podcast has actually made it so I've recorded much, much less than I would during a typical year. But I also got a new live act together, so I'm excited about that still. If you want to hear about that, watch our live videos. We have a Facebook page. If you look up Mark Lint's Dry Folk, which is facebook.com slash Music, Or if you want to hear my recorded work, it's at marklint.com. As always, I want to thank every single one of you that is listening to this, encourage you to like the Nakedly Examined Music Facebook page, share this episode with your friends, go to our iTunes store page and leave a nice review or rating. Those really, really help. Spread the word about what we're doing here. We can keep getting awesome guests. I've been very honored to talk to these folks throughout 2016, and I cannot wait for all the awesome stuff that's going to be going on here in 2017. So keep on musicking. This is Mark Lentz and Meyer signing off. (laughs) 